This is the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Thank you for listening. Yahoo Finance brought together some of the best minds in business for the All Market Summit held at the Oath Times Square office in New York City and via global live stream. This marquee event explored new challenges presented by the rapidly changing global economy. The following is a live panel from that day. Enjoy. Um, in case you didn't know, this is Barry Diller. Media mogul icon, yeah. been around the block a few times and uh, knows his stuff. And yes, he did in fact start his career in the William Morris mailroom. It's not apocryphal. No, no, it actually that's, happened. that's a true thing. I don't know if it still happens in the media business. I actually think it does. I think that now it's much more sophisticated. I mean, now you have to go and get basically a physics degree uh, to get in because they're highly sought those positions because they are. Uh, they're kind of the beginnings of a career track. And so they've tightened and tightened up. I would never get in today. Well, that would be a mistake if they didn't let you in. But you're right. I mean, so many people in Hollywood, for instance, have law degrees from Harvard because it's you know, a deal-making business. It hasn't and... exactly helped the creative process. <laughs> no, it hasn't. But yeah, if you look at like sequelitis, you mean, in terms of the kinds of things that Hollywood. The, well, this... the, the death of the movie business. Yeah. But you know, this is part of what you've been talking about recently, which is the movie business versus the streaming business versus the TV business, and where all the creative juices are really flowing now. And I know you were just at the, the Wall Street Journal conference talking about Netflix, for instance, and you, I think, if I'm inferring correctly, you kind of said, game over. Netflix has won the whole thing. Well, it's not a, it, it, it's not a total winner takes everything, for sure. But as far as being the mass distributor of content, uh, it's not the movie business. This is the essentially, this is the wireless distribution of media, of television, films, et cetera. Anyway, uh, their dominance, I don't think anybody will ever come close to it. They have 100 million subscribers. Uh, and it's almost, I mean, they'll be Facebook, uh, sorry. Uh, HBO, I think, is maybe in the 30s. Uh, there'll be people who get to 10 million, 12 million, something like that. But getting up there uh, is going to be increasingly difficult. It's not analogous to Amazon, which has got, I think, 60-some-odd million Prime members, because uh, Amazon's in a different business model. But for pure media distribution, I don't think anybody can complete can, can compete with Netflix. I'm just curious about that because you know there's what five or six movie studios, there's countless TV networks. Why why is it that in streaming where there seems to be sort of no barrier to entry other than, you know, being able to license content, maybe you get a loan from a bank and you start garnering content and gathering it, and maybe you build it, not unlike what Reed Hastings did. What is the barrier to entry, though? Why, why can't someone just There's to no push There's no barrier back? to entry whatsoever. Uh, the wonderful thing about the internet, until this administration stops net neutrality, the wonderful thing about the internet is you push a button and publish from here, and on the other side, somebody receives it. There's nobody between you, so to speak, and the consumer. So there is no barrier. But the barrier is capital, which is to be competitive today. And Netflix started out uh, essentially buying a library, and then they started building in uh, 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 kind of produced content, uh, beginning with House of Cards. So 
once they started stepping that up and, and got their subs up to a level, they went from two billion to four billion to six billion and now announced eight billion, I believe for 18 or 19. So you simply can't compete with those. That doesn't mean that somebody coming around the, the side isn't gonna produce a great program that people wanna, uh, so to speak, see and will subscribe to it. It's not impossible. It's just when you're talking about 100 million worldwide subscribers, that doesn't happen, that's not gonna happen with an awful lot of uh, duplicity, uh, duopoly, I don't think. Right, I take it you're not necessarily buying that Disney can sim simply flip a switch and start streaming like they say they're gonna do no, in a few years. Look, they'll, they'll, here's the thing, you know, let's call it 100 million or so uh, basic cable subscribers, all received ESPN, and they all paid for it. Only about six or seven percent actually watched it. So they were being subsidized by that huge other group, the majority group. They'll have a lot of subscribers to ESPN, but they can't ever duplicate what they had in cable. I'm not saying their services won't be successful. Right. They just won't ever be these, this, this massive amount of subscribers, all paying $10, $12 a month, pouring into this company. I think that's just hard to replicate. I take it from that little aside that you are pro-net neutrality. And uh, lifelongly. And, but, but why? But Barry, no, why, shouldn't, why shouldn't um, ISPs and, and people who provide internet be able to charge customers different rates? Well, I'm, they can charge, who is the customer here? Are you saying the customer is the person who's trying to get across the wire with their programming? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is you have a miracle. This internet thing is a, it's a total accident of history. Never happened before. You push a button, publish to everyone, okay? In the past, since the beginning of communications, there's always been somebody between you, between you creating something and the person receiving it, a distributor, right. some sort of organizer, somebody who's gotten warehouser. The internet, and it is truly, I mean, I still to this day when I kind of imagine it, and I imagine it in uh, kind of visceral terms, push a button and publish, and the world can get it. That is the reason why. Because if you change that and put a distributor's discrimination in the middle of it, we'll do what every distributor since the beginning of time has done, has said, my wires, are valuable. If you want to get across them, you're going to pay me a toll. That toll will be either dollars or more likely it'll be give me most of your profits. So net neutrality is to me as there, there is, I don't think there's anything that is more important than preserving and not allowing kind of industrial interests to crimp that process. I think that's, I mean, I really do think it's like close to un-American. How's that? Wow, okay. So to, so to push back and play the devil's advocate yeah, a little bit, it. Isn't, it, it. isn't it sort of just socialism, what you're saying? You know, it's just this government 
protects not this government. from it, the it, government's it, protecting the innocent people from people trying to make a living off the internet. Well, first of all, <laughs> it's a question really, it is, it is so hardly socialism. It's called good policy. You have regulation. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you would say, as this administration I think is oversaying, although I do think a lot of regulation should be pulled back to sensible regulation. But to not say that our big communication engines should not be under some regulatory scrutiny is unbelievably unwise. And so to, to, to regulate something that naturally, this happened naturally, because believe me, if the forces in the world could control it, they would have. They just didn't, thankfully, wake up in time. The internet started as you all know how it began, et cetera. People got used to it. Uh, it wasn't in the early days. Everything was, of course, free on the internet. The idea that you'd actually pay for something on the internet was kind of uh, not a nice thing as viewed by the users. So that was the natural development of it. And Net neutrality only came, the phrase only came, when corporate interests said, no, let us change this natural state. And let us start to do what we've done to other, every other media concept since time began. Let us control it and, and let us dominate it, few corporate interests. I think that we're, we're, I think we were lucky to get there and then when it came up, I think we've been very lucky that there's been enough noise about it to prevent it from being really invaded. Fair enough. And I happen to agree with you. Oh, well, good. Right. But you, so you convinced that me. You talked me into it. You talked me into it. Um, so one more question about streaming, and then we can talk about some other things. Um, and that is, if Netflix has got this kind of wrapped up in a way, and there'll be other people coming in. I mean, what is the future of the streaming business? I mean, how, how is it going to grow and change from here? Is it simply that Netflix is going to get bigger? No, you know, look, here's the thing. Don't be misunderstood about this. And I was asked the question in a context that, that doesn't say that this is in any way a winner-take-all. No. I just said that if you're thinking that, in fact, there's going to be a lot of services that are going to have 60, 80, 100 million right. Uh, uh, subscribers, I think that's, fo that's foolish. Netflix, accident of history also, got out there in front, did smart things, built it up. There'll be plenty of other services. Right. I mean, actually, everybody's, everybody is plowing in to over-the-top services. And a lot, part of the great thing about what's happened is this is true creative destruction. A lot of things are going to fail, but out of that, and a lot of incumbents and historical major players are really going to be confronted with this in the next year in profound ways. Some will succeed, find their ways out of it, and some will go by, and other things will get created in their wake, and I think that's good. And you're not sanguine about that's advertising? That's not socialist, by the no. way. No, okay. Well, I'm sorry I even brought that up. Oh, no, it's um, all right. I'm not um, sensitive. I think I'm going to get hit with that a few times. So not you're not sanguine about advertising, though, the advertising business, digital advertising business. Well, digital advertising is uh, totally controlled by Google and now to some degree, to a lesser degree, but a substantial degree, 
Facebook. And it's all programmatic, basically. You know, there's no longer a choice of my coming to you as an advertiser and saying, I've got this really great product. And you look at it and you say, God, that's great. I would like to sponsor that and put my name on it. Well, that's kind of gone. It's all machine. We have some of it. Pardon me? We have some of it. Yeah, oh no, okay, right. fine. Right. I'm, not I'm not unhappy that you're knocking on advertisers' doors. What I am mm -hmm. saying, and there are plenty of people doing it, what I am saying is that depending on digital advertising, where you don't have pricing power, and where there's such an unlimited amount of inventory, that is a very, very tough game. Right. And I don't see that changing. So let's talk about your company or one of your companies. I mean, the way it's the the way I understand is you have IAC and Expedia. Those are sort of the Those two businesses the two that you're that you're heading companies. up, right? The two principal yeah. public companies that you head up, right? Yeah. So let's talk about IAC, which is always a, I mean, it's a singular company, Barry. And and I'm wondering, is that by design? And because it is. A, has a peer group of one. Is that, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Has that hindered it or helped it? If we continue it? to succeed, it's a very good thing. <laughs> no. Fair enough. If we fail, who will care? But it, it does have a, a, a business model that uh, is a you little, see here the, the brands is a right little bit unique, which is that uh, it is, while you see a lot of brands up there, it's an anti-conglomerate in the sense that when things get to be of sufficient size, and we've spun off nine public companies in the last 15 years, which I think is kind of a record. Yeah. And uh, we believe that once companies get to be incubated by us in one way or the other, once they get to be of sufficient size, then they should be independent. They should be in the scrutiny of a public glare. Uh, and that is fairly unique. So while we build up a lot of companies, we've got a lot of things, we really want them to be successful so that they can leave the corpus. But there is, yeah, because I was saying, I don't, I don't know of another company like that. I don't either. Okay. As I said, it's right. maybe good. And so a lot of these, obviously, one thing that people know um, that you're known for, we got Investopedia, we know them, but also, obviously, a lot of the dating companies, right? Yes. Did you ever think, did you ever set out, like, I'm going to become yeah. the dating site mobile? Yeah, when I was you... 14. <laughs> okay. So trying to get a how did that happen? I mean, how did that evolve? You know, I very much believe in, you know, in odd circumstances, serendipity, et cetera. What happened was, and this is now a long time ago, uh, 18 years, something like that, my son said to me, there's this great site that you ought to buy uh, in, in, in Canada called Friends, Friends, not Friends, Friend Finder, something like that. And I looked at it and I said, Alex, it's a, a, it, it's a dating site for hookers. <laughs> I said, I don't really think so. I mean, they, we're not going to really do that. It's, but the idea that you could actually connect people for dating in that case, a certain kind, but it, that you could connect people, sparked an interest. And we found this little company in Dallas called Match.com, very, very early days. And we bought it and built from there. And once we kind of understood it and how it functioned and, uh, and 
And from anybody who's been frustrated or doesn't have the time or all of those reasons that you would give, that you don't want to go to bars and clubs and you don't like being fixed up because it's always a disaster. Uh, this form is a great way to connect people. And it's grown like crazy and it get, keep, the iteration in it is just fantastic because out of it comes Tinder, which is a whole other adaptation. What of did it. you think when you first started swiping, Barry, when you saw that? Why do you think I didn't swipe right? <laughs> Fair enough. Um, no, not my game. Right. But the it's like anything. The first time I think any, anybody saw Tinder, you know, and they saw this and they did this, they said, wow, this is great. It's just a wonderful product. And it was instantly realizable that it was wonderful. And with, I think probably in the first couple of years, I doubt we spent a million dollars on marketing. It was instantly, virally, everywhere in the world, a smash. Yeah, I want to ask you about that. How global are, say, these dating businesses? I mean, can you, do they really catch on in other countries? Yes, absolutely. I, I don't know, I don't have the stat, but certainly a good percentage of our revenue, 20%, maybe 30, could be more than that, I'm not absolutely sure, certain. Uh, is outside the U.S. And you know, in certainly English speaking and in the West, very much so. Uh, as you get further, further east, given traditions and other uh, uh, kind of methods of dating that are different than arranged marriages, things like that, it will take longer, but no, it's, it's worldwide. One of your more recent purchases is Angie's List. Yes. Um, I think you paid a premium for that. You must see a lot of potential. What, what are your plans for that business? Well, we think that home services, that, that, that the, the, the toughest thing for the internet to crack, you know, it was actually the first kind of colonization of the internet was actually by Expedia and in terms of travel. Travel was kind of the first that went online and got some very early days, 90s, no, no, 2000, probably around there. No, no, sorry, 97, 8, something like that. Anyway, um, these, these things got traction. And the um, and thing about this kind of traction is that once you kind of get it at a, at a very early stage, uh, they kind of self-propel themselves. So that's, that's going to be the iteration it will self-propel? Well, yeah. It, I think that what happens is that, um, that when you're in this business, in this internet world of both tech, you know, some bridge between tech and actual creativity, the iteration that goes on, the, the how things change, and then if you're in it, the only way you can function is to keep evolving the product. And so from a primitive beginning, these products, you know, unless they are kept very fresh and iterate for the rest of time, they'll, they'll, they'll fade. And so that's the thing. So these things 
they grow, and if they don't, they wither, and then they're discarded or they're folded. Yeah. And if they really grow, then they're spun out into IPOs. That's the That's business the model. model. Yep. Right. Um, so let's talk about your other company, um, Expedia. Yes. And you know, Arnie Sorensen was just up on stage just a few minutes ago, and he he said he called you a frenemy. He said you're a frenemy of his. I saw you guys talking back in the green room. I mean, you look fairly cordial, fairly. if I can tell people that. No, we're friendly. Um, so, so what's the story? He said when it comes to business travel, you're kind of knocking heads with those guys. Because there's never been a relationship between a producer and a distributor that isn't fraught with tension. Going back to your media film days. Businesses. Right, the film you know, business. I mean, mm -hmm. distributors and producers live in a world where they are interdependent upon each other, but they resent each other for this and that reason. The producer says, I'm doing the original work. Give me total dominance and most of the leverage. Uh, and the distributor says, I control things. You know, I, I am the midway between you and your consumer. Hark back to the issues on net neutrality. Exactly. But most of the world works, producer-distributor tension. So there's these natural tensions between people who own hotels uh, and who want people to go in them. We are, in some ways, I mean, I would not call us anything called evil, but we are a necessary step for them to reach their consumers. So they say, we would like to pay you less. We say, we would like you to pay us more. Therein is the tension. So it's interesting. So aren't you in some businesses a producer and in some businesses a distributor then? Yes. Because in that business you're a distributor. Totally. And the other ones you're a producer. Mm -hmm. So you don't mind being either one? I've never minded. I've always liked that. I, I, I ran movie companies where we had people who produced movies and we had a huge operation. These are in prehistoric days, meaning you know this is before digital when the only way you could get a movie into customers' hands was through a 35 millimeter projector and big heavy cans of film running around the, the country. So the distributors in the middle essentially had the only capability of getting the snake there on time. And so, but when you have them in the same house, you have to learn to wear two hats. And I've always liked, uh, the nuances of that. So you don't like one better than the other? You just like the whole holistic well, there, part of it? It depends on the yeah. market, depends on the situation. But again, I just think that right. it's, that natural tension's there, will be, it'll, it's there in any place. I don't think it's worse or better necessarily in travel. So let's, you're talking about Hollywood, so let's, let's talk about that for a second. Um, what the heck is wrong with Hollywood and it can, can it ever be cured? What are you defining Hollywood as? The motion picture business. Okay. No. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that. Look, what has happened to the movie business over the last 20 years, uh, before that, when you're in the movie business, you would develop material uh, and you would develop a lot of material and then choose from that what movies you'd like to make. And that was a very pure editorial process. And you chose things 
if you had a sensibility, I don't think anybody's ever been able to say this is commercial or this isn't, but you had a sensibility, if your sensibility was in the mainstream, your choices uh, would be based upon what you thought was good. Well, that worked for a very long time, quite nicely, and produced a wonderful treasure of movies. In the last 20 years, up came this monster called franchises and sequels. And the movie business totally tilted to much more of a marketing business. In the times that I was at Paramount and Fox and Universal, my three previous lives, uh, you know, that, that, was a, uh, that was like an a, a okay process. But then when the sequels came along, it, it totally upended it. It ruined the development process because we didn't do marketing very much when, when in, 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 sorry, let me say it correctly. When we'd finished the movie or close to finishing the movie, we'd turn our attention to marketing. We wouldn't start with marketing. It was, it's reversed engineered yes. now. So, so that process, I think, has just made movies just generally uninteresting. I, I think that, the, that, that when you go for huge costs, I mean, three, four hundred million dollars single movies, you know, you're doing it based upon some pretty careful predictions. Now, by the way, they're, they're almost never right. But so you're dealing with these, these, these things that you think you can predict enough return and all that. That's a lousy way to, 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 to actually try and make something that's interesting. And so I think what's happened over that period is that uh, that process of making movies is just ebbed and ebbed and ebbed. Independence uh, for a long time uh, kind of picked up some of that slack, but independents haven't been doing very well lately. And the majors, it's completely gone, except for some of their subsidiary uh, uh, outlets. And you're seeing the creativity in the streaming and, the, and even Well, no, you're seeing what happened. I just think when you say movies, I think movies aren't rarely, sometimes a great one comes. And the last great movie, I thought great movie, that I saw was Get Out which I yeah. thought was just a great movie. Mm -hmm. uh, great audience movie, interesting, all that stuff. There just are really few of them now because they're smothered by, by this huge sequel business, franchising business. That has been very successful. So, I want to switch gears and talk about something a little bit local um, that I know has been near and dear to your heart, which was this park project you had in the Hudson River. And it sounds like my understanding is you fought for this for a very long time, and now it's dead. Um, is there, what are, you, what are you going to do next with this? Is there anything, any life to it? There may be. There may be. Yeah, there may be. Because when I was when I was talking when I was reading what you were writing about or saying about it, you were saying this thing is. I'm, I'm I did. Done. I did because uh, we had been in several years of litigation and uh, uh, and we had the prospect of it continuing. And when you're talking about building a 250 million dollar island in the river, uh, that was not a prospect that I really wanted to play in. But. 
there may be, I think actually more than maybe, there's life there. Imminent life, maybe. Really? So should we should stay tuned for that? I think you could tune up for that. That sounds great. That's wonderful. Well, <laughs> my interest has peaked. It doesn't sound like you're going to reveal anything else at this particular point in time, as the, the police spokesman would say? The, as they say, as the seconds tick by. Right. Okay. All right. Well, wow. Now I'm be watching for that one. Um, and just last quick question. As you sort of think of future things to do, how, how do they come to you? Is, is it just that serendipity process? Maybe someone says, hey, what about this? That's, how do you pick the next thing to do? But that's where everything comes from. I mean, it either comes Not unless you're making a sequel or you're making a franchise. No, no. Any new idea, it doesn't matter where it starts from, you hear it, you react to it, and, you know, if you think it's, if you, if you like that idea in the purest sense, you go. You don't really have, you know, business plans, all that stuff everybody makes up. Uh, it, 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 it's not worth very much. The thing that's worth everything is your instinct for something and then your willfulness to get it done. Amen to that. All right, please join me in thanking the Thank one you. and only Barry Diller. Oh, thank you. Thank you again for listening to the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts.